The remarkable thing is this, that that wasn't a one-off or a short, short kind of short-time deal. He still is, because he does not change. So we can call upon him, who has the power and the willingness. People said to him, if, if you were willing, you could heal me. Jesus said, I'm willing. Where's your faith? Are you going to ask me to? People who were blind, he said, what do you want? The disciples, I'm sure, were nudging him one another, saying, he's blind for goodness sake, can't you see? But he, he wanted them to ask of him. Exactly. To exercise enough faith to ask him. And to look to him. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're asking our saviour, our master, to heal our friends. Or to even heal us. Right now. Lord Jesus, we bring our prayers to you. For our friends, for ourselves. And we look to you and trust you now. We ask of you, Lord Jesus. You tell us to ask that we may receive, that our joy may be made full. Lord, I thank you that again and again in the course of my life, you have healed me. You've delivered me and helped me and put me back on my feet, literally. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We honor your name. We trust you now and ask you for our friends. That your presence may come to them by the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit who gave life to a whole world will give life to those brothers and sisters and friends and family right now. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start into Hebrews. And the headline for Hebrews is Jesus is better. Could say greater, but I think better is even more punchy. Better than what? Answer? Everything. Let's do some introduction first of all. Who wrote Hebrews? If you've got a, uh, an authorised version, it'll say the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, but the author is not actually identified in the letter by name, though towards the end of the book when we get there, there are some clues that rather point to Paul, and we'll deal with them when we get there. Others have suggested Barnabas or Apollos, Martin Luther thought it, Apollos wrote the book, have also been proposed as being the author of his book, but from the very earliest times, by AD 100, sorry, AD 200 or so, this letter was always put in the Paul list. The thinking, the reasoning is distinctly Hebrew. In fact, it, it sounds very much like a rabbi in the way that he pulls these scriptures together and says these things one after another. It's kind of rabbinical teaching. And yet the, the writing shows a very good knowledge of Greek. So one suggestion, therefore, and this was Calvin's uh, opinion, is that this is like a sermon delivered by Paul, written down probably by Luke. Because the, the, it's as if someone's speaking and it's being, you know, written out. And the person speaking isn't afraid to exercise real authority. I say this to you. You know, he, he speaks to people very directly. By now you should be. You know, th- there's apostolic authority in, the, in these words. There's weight behind them. Very similar to the way that Paul writes. Except Paul probably didn't write it, but he, in my view... He spoke it. So if I say as we go through Paul, wrote Paul says, it's because that's the way I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm not convinced of any alternatives. So Paul through Luke, let's say that. So who is it written to? Well, again, your, your 
book title says Hebrews, or the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, but it doesn't say, actually. There's no, there's no who it's from, there's no who it's to. But we can tell from the, the language of the letter, it's an exhortation clearly addressed to people from a Jewish background who have come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. People from a Jewish, a Hebrew background. Perhaps they were in one place, maybe Rome, maybe Jerusalem, or even scattered across an area. You see, some of the other letters in the New Testament were also written to groups of people, scattered groups of people, to be passed around. The Ephesian letter wasn't just written to the Ephesians, actually. It was written to a whole series of churches, including Lystra and Derby and so on, in that area. Galatians was written to a group of churches in an area. Jude's letter was written to groups of people scattered abroad. Peter writes to a dispersed group of people as well. So it's it's to Hebrew Christians. And there's two reasons why it was written. This is kind of figuring it out. Going to give you quick conclusions. I'm not going to show you all the workings like they say in school, you know. Show me all your workings. If I did that, we'd be here all day. First occasion is this. It's, prob- it's probably written in about A.D. 64, early 60s A.D., 30 years after Jesus was crucified and raised again. And first of all, the world is about to change. From the early A.D. 30s, the resurrection of Jesus, just a few months into the life of the early church, the, the Jewish authorities, sad to say, became the persecutors of Christianity and of Christian believers. For 30 years, that was the case. 30 years, there were people who followed Paul around, trying to undo what he was doing. Jewish people following him around, trying to, trying to destroy Christianity. And in Jerusalem, the persecution happened on and off over that period of time against the church. But 30 years on, <clears throat> the church is getting a new enemy. He's called Nero. He's the Roman emperor. In time, Nero will persecute the Christians in Rome, burning them to death as lamps to light his gardens at night, throwing them to animals in the, in the, in the Colosseum to be torn apart. Nero begins to turn the power of the Roman Empire against the Christians. And here's the thing. In that period of time, to be a Christian was to be prey to persecution. To be a victim, a target. But to be Jewish, you were protected by Roman law. Therefore, if you were from a Jewish background and someone, someone came to you and said, Are you a believer in Jesus? To say no could save your life. To deny Jesus might just preserve your life. Now, that would be a big temptation, wouldn't it? That's a big issue. That was the choice that Christian believers from a Jewish background in those early 80s, 60s were facing. And also, as you're going through the 80s, 60s, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's something coming up. Within 40 years of Jesus saying it, something is going to happen. And it is this. In the second half of the 80s, 60s, the Jewish nation were at war with the Roman Empire, which led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. The Jewish nation would be scattered. Their temple-based Judaism and their nationhood ended. And Jesus had prophesied it. 
It's what the Olivet Discourse is about, Matthew 23, 24, mirrored in Mark and Luke. I won't go into those references this morning. Remember Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things? What things? The, the temple being torn down so that not one stone was left on another. Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. A time of terrible trouble that was going to come upon the land. Jesus prophesied that it would happen within a generation. Generation, biblically, is about 40 years. And it happened in A.D. 70, after three and a half years siege, Jerusalem fell to the Romans, and they rampaged, killing, looting, burning. The temple was firstly set afire, even though the Roman general told them not to do it. He wanted to preserve it and turn it into a Roman temple for Roman gods. They set a fire to it. And the gold that was on the walls and in the roof melted. So fierce was the heat and ran down between the stones. So that when the building had cooled down, the Roman soldiers used great bars to prise the stones apart to fillet the gold and take it home. Not one stone was left upon another. That is going to happen. So there is a great urgency about this letter. For Christians from a Jewish background, persecution's happening. And actually, Jewish nationhood, Jewish identity, wrapped up in Jerusalem, the temple and so on, is going to be wiped out. So whether during the next year or two, or at a time further on, the people this letter were addressed to were going to face great trials. And here's where this is contemporary to us. How many of you have a suspicion that it isn't that the best, it, well, in a one way, that for the church the best is yet to come, but also the worst is yet to come? We live in perilous times. We live in times when, when uh, our nat- the, the flavour, the atmosphere of our nation, whether it's government or media, whatever, is increasingly anti-Christian. So what are we going to do? Run to another country? <laughs> Don't worry, it'll catch up. These people are going to face great trials. And this letter is written to strengthen them, to encourage them, to steal them, ready for that. That's why this letter was written. And the big theme of this letter is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Law given through Moses, Judaism, synagogues and so on. It's better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than Moses the great leader and deliverer of Israel. Jesus is better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the temple and so on. He's greater than the temple. He's made in himself the better and final sacrifice. He's made a better covenant, made on better promises. And he gives us a better hope and a better future. In fact, 13 times the word better appears in Hebrews. Here's another way of saying it. Those of you who have done maths or computer science will know what that symbol means. It means this side, this is the big thing, and the other side where the arrow is, that's the small thing. Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than everything. But Hebrews doesn't just push the message, Jesus is better. Hebrews brings us repeated warnings that Jesus should not be renounced or denied, even at the cost of losing your life. 
for there really is no alternative to Jesus. When the time comes to face that trial of faith, actually there isn't an old covenant to go back to. It's already been put away, put to end by the sacrificial death of Jesus and the last symbols of that whole order will soon be destroyed. But the letter is very thorough because it does what some of us preachers forget to do. It makes practical application of the teaching as well as warnings as it works through. Gives you some doctrine, gives you a warning, tells you what to do about it. And at the back end of the letter from chapter 11 onward, knowing that Jesus is better. Or to say it as I said it earlier this week on a tweet thing. When we know that Jesus is better, we will want to know him better. That's where I'm going with this. I'm going to start today with just a few verses. Just the beginning three verses of this letter. And it's all, the whole theme is here. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power, by his powerful command, his powerful word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me pick through that with you. God spoke in the past through prophets, many occasions and in various ways. And to me, one of the remarkable things about the Old Testament prophets is how many the Lord faithfully sent, not only to the southern kingdom of Judah, where the line of David continued for some centuries, but to the northern kingdom of Israel. You know the kingdom was divided after Solomon, north and south. The northern kingdom was almost always pagan. It rejected Yahweh again and again and again. And yet God sent to that kingdom prophet after prophet after prophet. Some of the very best. Elijah and Elisha were prophets to the northern kingdom. The idolatrous, unfaithful part. I'm not saying the south wasn't bad at times. But it, it had good times and bad times and revivals and you know, all the rest of it. But in the north they, const- they were almost constantly opposed to the knowledge of God, to the Lord. And yet God sent prophets faithfully. Eventually that northern kingdom was destroyed in in BC 722. So the capital city of Samaria was destroyed. God continued to send his messengers to the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And the prophet Jeremiah lived right through the siege of Jerusalem that happened in 586 BC, which was exactly like the one that happened centuries later in AD 70. In fact, they happened on the same calendar date in the Hebrew calendar. Both destructions of Jerusalem happened on the same calendar date. 586 BC, 70 AD. And Jeremiah lived right through that. God had a prophet speaking right through the whole thing. Isn't that God's faithfulness? 
He spoke in many times and in various ways. And the main message, though, of all the prophets, of course, is not uh, trouble's coming, this is going to happen. It's Jesus is coming. It's mostly about Jesus. If you don't believe me, go and read Isaiah. And notice how often what you read there is really talking about Jesus. Or the Psalms, and how many of those are mostly, really, talking about the Lord Jesus. Here's a thought for you. Did God send prophets elsewhere? Did he raise up witnesses in other places too, societies? I would say he did. There are accounts of the fall of man and of the flood through Noah in many cultures and many traditions. And, and you know, we're talking about myths and legends here, but let's, not, let's just live with that for a moment. How many of those talk about a redeemer, one who will be sent from God, even God himself will come? Many of them have those legends about them. But they, they've got mixture in them. The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God sent his son into the world. And it was through Hebrew prophets that he spoke on these occasions in many ways to prepare the way. And the Holy Spirit so inspired those men that many of their prophecies are today in our hands as scriptures for us. That's the quality of what God did through those men. The last of those prophets those Hebrew prophets was not Jesus it was John the Baptist he was the last of the order and in fact Jesus said if you'll listen to if you'll receive my words he said he was the greatest of the prophets John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets so the letter says God spoke to the fathers in the past through these prophets but the time of the prophets ended with the coming of Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't prophesy. But what we prophesy now has to be connected back to the revelation of Jesus. It's not new. It's not, oh, that's, that's then, but now we've got, we've got a fresh and new thing. We haven't got a new thing. There is no such thing as God's next revelation. There isn't. In this final period of human history, God has spoken to us in his Son. Why do I say it says in, the last, in these last days? Let's, expect, let's, let's look at that word, two words, last days. You see, on the basis of what the Old Testament prophets had said, the Jewish rabbis taught the world would enter a new age with the coming of the Messiah. They called the reign of Messiah, which they were looking for, the last days. It means Messiah's reign. It's the same thing. So the last days started, in fact, when Jesus came to us. And prophecies in the scriptures about the last days are referring to the whole period of time from the first coming of Jesus to the return of Jesus. The last days is not some period of time out beyond us still. It's already been happening for these 2,000 years because Jesus has been reigning as Messiah for these past 2,000 years. We've been living in the last days. When was the Holy Spirit poured out? At Pentecost. Do you know what the answer is from Joel? In the last days. So when Peter stands up and says, these are the last days, how can, I, how can you tell? Because the Holy Spirit's been poured out. We're living in the last days. Not because we are the last generation and we're the bees, whatever. No, because Jesus came and the Holy Spirit's been poured out. Here's the evidence. We're in the last days, folks. The last period of human history is the one that we're living in now. 
Now, like the parable that the Lord Jesus told himself, here's what God did. He sent, first of all, his servants, his messengers. But finally, he sent his son. Jesus is therefore greater than the prophets. It's not the same as, not another one of. He is greater than the prophets. He actually claimed to be greater than the prophets and kings of Israel. But if you ever read this, or you should have probably read it, you haven't maybe noticed it. As the crowds were increasing, this is Luke 11, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It, asks, it seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Noah. What was the sign of Noah? Three days, Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days dead in the great fish. Jesus is going to be in the tomb? Three days. days. The sign will be the sign of Noah, of Jonah. What's the matter with me? Luke 11.30. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. They'll speak against this generation who are rejecting Jesus. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Let's get it right. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than every Old Testament king an Old Testament prophet. Why? Because he's the sender, not the messenger. He is God. God has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus is the full and final word of God, revelation of God. God had not fully spoken to us until he sent his Son, but now that Jesus has come, and we've seen him and heard him, there is no need for a further revelation. What the Holy Spirit does now is keep leading us back and reaffirming to us and reminding us about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done and how that works for us. That's why everyone who comes after Jesus, as Jesus prophesied, there'll be those who come after me, but they're liars. Everyone who comes after Jesus and claims a further degree of revelation is to be rejected. Any true prophecy, dream or vision points to Jesus and agrees with his words. If it doesn't, it's a lie. Kick it out. There's a comment from F.F. Spruce. One of the commentators that we read. The story of divine revelation is a story of progression. It was gradual. It increased up to Jesus. But there is no progression beyond him. Jesus is the word of the Father and the final word of the Father. And then we've been reading here in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the heir of all things. For the sake of my poor, simple mind, I'm, putting, I'm rearranging the order here to say this to you. See, all things exist because he made them. John 1 verse 3. All things came into being through him, through the Lord Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
He made it all. He is creator. Jesus is creator of all things. God made everything by his word, by his son, actually. And then he's not only creator, he's sustainer. All things continue because he sustains them by the word of his power, by his authoritative command. I like the comment of Wayne Gruden, one of the best theologians of our generation, who said, even when Jesus was a baby in a manger, he was still sustaining everything by his command, by the exertion of his authority. Jesus exerts his authority to make the atoms keep running. If you talk to physicists, there's all sorts of stuff they can't explain. They even look for hidden particles and... You know, Higgs bosons. Do you know what makes the the whole universe hold together and run? It's not just laws. It's an exertion of the will of God in Jesus. He sustains things by the word of his power. They hold together. They don't blow apart. It isn't chaos. Because Jesus holds it together. There's even... In some scriptures a hint that he's not only the creator, but he's the recreator. He renews the earth. He refreshes. And all things exist for him. They are his inheritance. He is heir of all things. Now usually when we think about an heir, we're thinking about some old bloke dying so the son gets it. God doesn't need to die for Jesus to be heir. And it wasn't Jesus died that became heir. He's appointed heir. You'll have to go back to the way things were in the first century and in Hebrew times as well. When you appointed your son as heir, you handed over the authority to him. It was called in Roman language adoption. Here's my son, listen to him, deal with him, because now he's in charge. Jesus has been appointed heir of God. He runs the show. He's in charge. The kingdom's in his hands until he's finished doing what he's going to do with it and then he returns it to the Father. That's what it says in Corinthians. The kingdom is upon his shoulders. The government rests upon him. They're in his inheritance. Let me read some scriptures too. Hebrews 2.10 says, For from, from whom are all things and through whom all are all things. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And then one of my favourites, it was on my birthday cake the other year, wasn't it? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We're speaking here of the Lord Jesus. From him, creator, through him, still energizing the whole cosmos. Still holding it together. These, the laws and principles of physics and science and obviously don't just run. They come from him. He makes it happen. And he is the heir the proprietor of all things. He's not waiting to inherit. It's his now. It's his now. Old Testament Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
I tell you, we need a generation of Christians who shout that back at the world when they think they own the place. And the people who think the devil runs the place. No, no, no. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. It doesn't belong to the devil. It doesn't belong to man. It belongs to God. And it's entrusted to Jesus, the heir of God. He's the proprietor. Then it says, Jesus is the shining out of God and the full image of God. It uses the word representation. Because he is God, the eternal son. We learned this when we went through John's Gospel a long time ago. 1 John 1, 18, which I think was the first Sunday that Nettie and Brenda came and he, he heard me preaching. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. In all history, the Father has never been seen except Jesus has been the revealer of the Father. People have only seen the Son, but he has fully revealed the Father. 1 Timothy 1.7 says, 17 says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. One of the essential attributes of God is that he is invisible. You can't see him. The only God be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus has made the invisible God visible to human beings. And as I preached all the time ago on one John, on John verse one verse eight, John chapter one verse eighteen, he's done it throughout all human history. But he's particularly done it when he came and was born a babe and lived as man amongst us, truly God, truly man. If you saw Jesus, you'd seen God. Well, oh, that's a bold thing to say. No, I didn't make it up. Jesus said it. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is the outshining of the Father, like the rays of light and radiation from the sun. He carries the full and authentic image of the Father, like the face upon a coin. And the word there that's in Hebrews 1 is representation. Interestingly, the Greek word there is character. You know that word. What's God like? Look at Jesus. Watch him, read him, listen to him. He's the authentic, full revelation of who God is. There's nothing more to say about God except to find him in Jesus. God is fully imaged and fully revealed in Jesus. There's nothing hidden from us that would do us any good. It's all to be seen in him. You know, at the transfiguration... Before three disciples, the Lord Jesus literally shone with the glory of God. It wasn't put upon him, it came from inside him. But we've learned from John's Gospel that while that was extraordinary and tremendous, if you get to it, every time John and the others were watching Jesus and listening to Jesus, they were handling, they were seeing the face of God, the glory of God, the character of God. Everything he did, every word he said, was never anything less than God acting in flesh. The invisible God made visible. There's really nothing bigger we could say about Jesus than these three things. He's the creator, sustainer, and heir of all things. He's the very image and outshining of God. So Jesus is God. Now listen to Paul writing to the Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible 
and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, people get excited about principalities and powers. Listen, Jesus made them. They've gone terribly wrong and they're terribly evil, but you know what? Are they, are they outside of his authority? Come on. He made them. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's how great Jesus is. When I was very much younger, Christians used to like singing, he's got the whole world in his hand. Let's have a swing along. It's a very, very powerful truth. The Jesus, you see pictured on the cross, in paintings and crucifixes and so on, is the Jesus who made the world. Still runs them. It all belongs to him. How big is he? You can't imagine. Oh, you can't imagine. How great he is. I've got two more points. Jesus has made purification since when he had made purification of sins. Now that's a big subject and I'm not going to preach it all this morning by any means. We don't need to go too far with that today because the writer returns to that further on the letter. We have chapters 8, we have chapters 8, 9 and 10 which are really all about the atonement. What the blood of Jesus means to us. We're going to look again at words like sacrifice, atonement, propitiation, mercy seat in relation to Jesus. He has made full and final purification of our sins. But let me focus on this today. Let's focus in. Jesus has made purification for all sin. For all time. For the sins of the world, as Scripture puts it. But let me focus down. Jesus has made purification of our sins. And if I want to be a little bit selfish, I'll focus down some more and say, Jesus has made purification of my sins. Like one of the hymns we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. There's much more to this doctrine than pardon and forgiveness. We believe in forgiveness of sins, yes, but you know, Jesus made purification. Purification is stronger than pardon. It means he actually makes you clean. This cleansing is not just guilt, conscience, Condemnation. This is actually, you are cleaner because Jesus has made purification. Jesus made purification, cleansing of my sins so that I might become a child of God, accepted and loved by the Father. That I might be cleansed and freed from my sins. We sang it earlier. You know, sometimes we don't, who's it said, some preacher said, we don't, Artie Kendall, no. He says, we don't, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Did you notice what we sang earlier? My chains are gone. I've been set free. How? By Jesus making purification from sin. He has made the opportunity for me to be cleansed and freed from my sins. Just like having chains cut off me. So that I might live in good conscience and confidence before God. Here it is in Revelation, very beginning of the book of Revelation. To him 
who loves us and released us. Some versions have washed or cleansed. Same thing. They were on you. Now they've gone. Because he has released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him, to Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made purification of sins. It is entirely possible that you can be freed, not only from the guilt of your sin, but even from the continuation in that sin, from your going back to it. That's the power that there is in what Jesus has done on the cross. The last one is this. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is not now on a cross, nor in a tomb. Raised from death, he ascended to the Father, and he has sat down at the Father's right hand. What's the significance of sitting down? First thing is, his work is finished of atonement. He's bled and died and bleeds and dies no more. He has suffered and does not suffer anymore. His work is finished at rest. One old gospel song anticipates heaven as being, and I remember this from younger, I'm going to a place where I can sit down. And for people who really do have to work extraordinarily hard, they're, they're indented labour or whatever, every waking hour is spent serving the will of a human master. Just the promise, just the thought of being able to sit down and stop would seem very good to you. But Jesus endured the cross despising its shame, to bring about eternal salvation. And having completed his work of suffering, he has sat down. In fact, he even pronounced it from the cross. Remember? It is finished. Not I am finished, and not all his work is finished, but the work of redemption, the work of salvation, is finished by what Jesus bought on the cross. For him, there is no more blood, no more death, no more trials of faith and obedience because he endured those two for us, you know. He succeeded where we fail so that we might be credited with his success, with all his righteousness. Here's another quote for you, John Brown. As the reward of his expiatory sufferings, that's his suffering, his atonement-making suffering, Jesus Christ is elevated to the highest conceivable station of dignity, and authority. Now Jesus has sat down because his work of suffering and dying and, and, and redeeming is finished. But his work of reigning is now really on. The government is upon his shoulders. He's not just seated in any old chair. Why don't you ever sit down over here, old boy? You'd be comfortable there. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Sitting at the right hand doesn't mean you're an observer. That's good, yeah, you did that well. Yeah, thanks for yours. Yeah, I admire that. It means that the father says, son, over to you. He becomes the right hand of God. He rules. He reigns. By the working of God's mighty power, this is Ephesians. By the working of God's mighty power, he has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, God put all things in subjection under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church. I like praying that, that, that phrase. Time and time again I come to Jesus with the situations and problems and circumstances. I say, Lord Jesus, you are head over all things to your church. I'm, I'm calling on you. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or another one very familiar, Philippians 2. God has highly exalted him, Jesus. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me let Peter have a say in this too. Peter writes, Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's go back to the words of Jesus. They're recorded amongst his final words. We we call this the Great Commission from Matthew 28. How does Jesus start? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I know I've said it before. But if Jesus claims all authority, there's not much left. Anywhere. Anywhere. It's all borrowed. It's all temporary. Whether it's Napoleon the Emperor or, or, or Mao Zedong or whoever. Whoever thinks they can get, get out there and make, run the world and it'll all be theirs. No, no, no. Jesus has all authority. With that image, truth in our minds and our hearts, we hear what he says next. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. See, the earth belongs to me. Go and, go and get it, guys. Go and get it. Lead all the nations to faith in me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You sometimes think I talk about obedience a lot. It's because Jesus said I'm, I'm to do it. I'm to teach you to do all that he commanded us. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The work of Jesus' suffering is over. The work of reigning has begun. I love this quote from John Brown again. The throne of Jehovah is the throne of Jesus. It's the same throne. He's quoting from Revelation here really. He says it's the throne of God and the Lamb. Jesus will not leave his Father's side until the last day when he will return in power and glory with angelic hosts shouting and trumpets trumpeting and he'll raise the dead and gather his people home and judge the world. But he is doing something even now. And that is what Hebrews really opens up to us. What Jesus is doing now. Unseen to us. In the heavenly place. With the Father. But Jesus is still doing something. Here's the headline. Jesus lives and continues to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. We still hear his word through the Holy Spirit coming from him. He still prays and intercedes for us. He carries us in his hands. My name is graven in his hands, it says. You know that? It's a picture from the Old Testament. We'll get to that. He's our priest, our high priest. 
Oh, I'm looking forward to getting into that one. And he's our king. He still rules. In fact, he rules over everything. He's F.F. Bruce. He's the prophet through whom God has spoken his final word. He's the priest who's accomplished a perfect work of cleansing for his people's sins. He's the king who sits enthroned in the place of chief honour alongside the majesty on high. All that Jesus has won through his obedient life, his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection, he now dispenses, he now gives out from heaven, acting as our prophet, our priest and our king. It's done, it's paid for, it's won, it's available. Where from? From him. He's made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of God. So we come to him to be washed from our sins, to be freed from condemnation, to receive a clean conscience, to be empowered to live a new life. I want you to be clear about this. He is committed to purifying us, every one of us, from our sins. He's committed to it. And the process that he's going to do it is called sanctification. He's going to take you through a process of change, and learning, and a lot of repentance along the way, so that you get purified from your sins. He's committed to that. Why? Because it's what he paid for. It's what he died for. So if you have any one of us, oh, I just want to hang on to this, Jesus said, you're not going to hang on to that. Oh, no. That's not what I came for. That's not what I died for. Come to him, ask him, receive from him. Here's a beautiful quote from Andrew Murray. The same share you have in Jesus on the cross, you have in Jesus on the throne. Some of us are very familiar with understanding what Jesus did on the cross. He's now doing it still, but by his rule. He's your governor. He's your master. He rules over you and he's going to work in you what he won at the cross. Did you get it? He's going to do it. He's committed to it. He has made purification of sins and he will purify his saints. He will purify his people. And for some of us, we get to choose the hard way or the slightly easier way. Jesus is better. Yeah, that's it. And we will want to know him better when we're convinced that he is better. He's greater than you thought. What he's done on the cross is far more powerful than you thought. I've said it so many times. The grace of God is so much more than being forgiven when we get it wrong. The grace of God comes to empower us to live right. And the gospel's been cut down to half size or even less for too long. This gospel of the grace of God takes sinners and turns them into people who can communicate with God and live in clear conscience before God and be empowered by God to live well for him. Not perfectly, because we still struggle. We're still dealing with stuff. We're still dealing with temptation. But change is possible because Jesus has redeemed us. And to him who has loved us and washed us from our sins. To him be glory. Amen.